we need to know is Jesus we proclaim to the ends of the earth. And so we're all about proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus, and we want to see Jesus today in his word. So would you come to God's word in prayer humbly today? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would humble our hearts. We need to hear from you. We need your word. We need your word to be like honey to us. We need to feed us. We need we need sustenance. We need to be filled We need you to speak. And so, Lord, we know you've spoken fully and finally in Christ and in your word. And now we ask by your spirit that you would apply it to us. That we would be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. More and more Christ-like in our lives. More and more full of love and peace. And more and more knowing that to be in the presence of God is to to hear the truth of God from your word. Lord, that you're going to speak when we come to you. You're going to speak when we're in your presence. You're going to reveal yourself and you have for us in Jesus. So, Lord, we come confidently now to your word, but we come humbly, knowing that we don't deserve it. It's only by your grace. And help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25 as we continue on in our series, looking at the tabernacle and the furniture of the tabernacle and the makeup of the tabernacle and uh, continuing on through Exodus. And this is actually one of the best Old Testament passages, just looking at God's presence among his people. We said last week that John chapter 1 verse 14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and the word dwelt there tabernacled among us. He came and And pitched his tent among us. He came and set up a tent and lived the life we live. He lived among us. And and so that picture there in John points back to the tabernacle in the wilderness. And we're going to see later on an even greater picture of how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's presence with his people. And so I encourage you to come to God's word today with the with the expectation that you're going to. You're going to see who God is and how he's working, how he's revealed himself and how he wants to be known. All right. So just to catch you up on the story a little bit, God has called Moses up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Right. So Moses has gone up a couple of times. He's gotten the law. He's heard from God. The people have heard from God. Now Moses is up. He's in the presence of God and he's going to stay there for 40 days and 40 nights. And there God is going to give him the tablets of the law, which he calls the testimony. This Two copies of the tablets of the law, each side of the covenant. God is keeping the covenant for the people because the people just aren't going to keep the covenant. Let's just be honest, right? God God makes the covenant with his people and says, if you, but then he's the one who actually comes in and keeps the covenant for them. So he's going to give them two copies, and those two copies of the covenant, he's going to give a resting place for those, a place for them to be carried around. He's also going to give... The layout and the design for the tabernacle, for his dwelling place. The goal of God was not that people would come up the mountain. The goal of God was to come down to the people, to be among his people, to be their God and for them to be his people. So he gave Moses the law and the design and the specifications for the tabernacle in these 40 days and 40 nights. It's been said by many commentators. What's fascinating is this kind of shows the denseness of humanity. That God could create the entire universe in six days by speaking. It took him 40 days and 40 nights to tell Moses how to build one house. That this is how God operates through people. It takes time. It takes time. And we also saw last week that in the design of the tabernacle, what does God do? He provides everything necessary to get it done. He provides the materials. They looted the Egyptians as they went. God gave favor to the Israelites in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they took all their gold and silver with them. And that's how they built 
all of the things for the tabernacle, all of the thread that was necessary, all the material was necessary, was all taken out of Egypt. God provided. God provided the way that this would all be made. He gifted artisans to be able to make everything for the tabernacle. God designed it and God supplied it. And this is God's desire is to be with his people, that God's glory would come and dwell among his people. And we saw last week at the end of Exodus in Exodus chapter 40, that once Moses was done building the tabernacle for the first time, he didn't enter it. No, God entered it. God's glory came and filled the tent, this tent of meeting at every turn. We also saw last week that Jesus is the fulfillment that while everything is pointing backwards to Eden and restoring everything to paradise and everything is pointing forward to heaven and this day when God will dwell among his people and there'll be no more sin, no more tears, no more suffering and all of that will be gone. That the fulfillment of the tabernacle is actually Jesus, that he's the God made flesh. He is the one who has come to be with his people, to dwell among his people. He's the only son of God who came to tabernacle among us. And so today we want to begin to look at the furniture, the furniture of the tabernacle. And you say, wow, we're going to have a furniture session. We're going to go to Ikea today. What? What are we doing? No, we want to look at what God's word says about the furnishings of the tabernacle, because in it, we begin to learn more about God's purposes in dwelling with his people, that the goal of God in dwelling with his people. Why does God want to be with his people? And so while we might think that Moses would start big, right, and say, let's look at the tabernacle as a whole, look at the courtyard and the thousands of square feet there, and then let's look at the tent. No, they start, God wants us to hear about the Ark of the Covenant right there in the Holy of Holies. The most important piece of the whole puzzle is right there. And in chapter 25, beginning with verse 10, we're going to explore the shadows of Jesus, how Jesus is the better Ark of the Covenant. And more specifically, we're going to see how Jesus is the one who ushers us into the presence of God as being God in flesh for us. So follow along if you would. Exodus chapter 25, beginning with verse 10, it says this. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Merry Christmas. Right? This is like, doesn't seem Christmassy, but it is. It's brilliantly Christmassy. It's brilliantly pointing forward to Jesus. Verse 11, you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it. And two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. God not only designs the ark, but how it's going to be carried. Verse 15, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Design the ark, design how it's carried, and design what goes in it. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, a, a, a lid for the box. And this pure gold mercy seat shall be two cubits and a half in length and a cubit and a half its breadth. So it's the size of the top of the box. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, two angels, mighty angels of God of hammered work shall you make them. So the gold overlay is then hammered into the shape of these two angels. On the two ends of the mercy seat, 
Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. So it's one piece of gold that's hammered on the ends into these two angels. The cherubim, verse 20, shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. They're bowing down. Their faces down to the mercy seat. Everybody with me on this? That's the imagery he wants you to see. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. The tablets. Verse 22. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat. So the cherubim are bowing. Not looking at the presence of God. There above, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The ark of the covenant. When I was a kid, Indiana Jones was after it. Anybody else? Right? Now there's guys up in Nova Scotia who are after it on an island on the History Channel. So the History Channel has made a lot of money out of people going and looking for the Ark of the Covenant. They have done well making series after series after series, trying to figure out the Ark of the Covenant. Why does the Ark of the Covenant hold such a mystical uh, control over humanity? Even people who aren't believers are like, Ark of the Covenant, right? There's something about it. It's because there's a, there is a mystical quality to the idea of God's power coming among us. But this is not the goal for the people of God. The people of God should not be wrapped up in this idea of, placing all of our hope in finding or being with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was just a tool in God's arsenal of being with his people. God's desire was to be with his people. The Ark was a way that that would happen. So as we're going through this, it's really interesting how the Ark has been used. And I'm just going to tell you right now that the people of God have historically misused the Ark of the Covenant. In the same way that the people of God have often misused the name of God and misused the purposes of God and misuse the presence of God. The history of the ark goes a little bit like this. The Israelites carried the ark during their 40 years of wandering. The presence of God was there with them in the fire and the cloud and would come and settle in on the tabernacle. And when the presence of God got up and left, they packed up everything and they got the poles and they picked up the ark and they went with him. And then when he stopped, they stopped and they set up the tabernacle and they put the ark back into the Holy of Holies, this most holy place. They would build the tabernacle again and place the ark inside. When they entered the promised land, after this 40 years of so-called wandering, which was really God just leading them in circles, we call it wandering. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they come to the promised land and Joshua leads them in and they have to cross the Jordan River. So the priests take by the poles, the Ark of the Covenant, and when the priest's foot hits the water, the Jordan River dries up and they're able to cross over. They took the Ark before them as they marched around Jericho at the Battle of Jericho. Every day, the Ark preceding the people as they walked around the city. And then on the last day, the many times that they, the seven times that they went around and, and then the walls fell down, right? Ultimately, the ark would find a resting place at Bethel, first of all, and then ultimately in Shiloh, and the tabernacle was set up there. The people, while it was at Shiloh, would come and consult the ark. But, but they also looked at the ark more like a relic or more like some magic charm that they would use. In fact, there's the story in God's word of 
God's presence being among them, and yet the people treating it more like a magic charm. So the elders of Israel took the ark to the battle of Eben-Ezer against the Philistines, their mortal enemies. And they thought, because they had seen the power of God and they had seen the ark in the presence of God, they thought if they had the ark with them, no matter how they were living and what they were doing, no matter how they were honoring God outside of battle, they thought if they had the ark with them, then there was no way they could lose. Well, they lost. 30,000 men were killed, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. Can you imagine being the guy, one of the few guys who actually survives the battle, who has to now go back and tell everybody, oh yeah, by the way, not only did 30,000 people die, but we lost the Ark. When he comes back, he tells the priest, Eli, an old man, and Eli fell dead on the spot. And Eli's daughter-in-law gives birth, naming her son Ichabod. So don't name your child Ichabod. The glory has departed Israel. It's a big deal. This is what happens. Well, the Philistines, as, they, as you would expect them to, they now have the spoils of war. They have the ark of the people of God, right? So they paraded around their country showing everybody all of the spoils of war. We beat the Israelites. Look, we have their ark. Right, you know all that power? That's our power now, and they thought they could use it for themselves, much like a magic charm. It's kind of like all of those movies where they're all looking for the Pharaoh's tomb, and there's the power. and they, That's kind of how the Philistines looked at it. And they took it around after defeating Israel, but it didn't really work out well for them. They put the ark inside the temple of their idol god, Dagon. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. They put the ark inside there. At the feet of Dagon, thinking now our, our God is Lord over their God. They wake up the next morning and Dagon is laying on his face before a stone idol is laying on his face before the ark. So they're like, well, that's weird. So they prop it back up. They go back to bed. Wake up the next morning on his face with his hands and his face shattered. So they're like, well, Okay. The next thing that happens is a bunch of rats and a bunch of boils and disease. Everywhere it went. God was not going to be mocked by the Philistines. God was not going to be mocked by his people. So they decide we should give that back. They're like, this isn't the thing we should have stolen from the Israelites. We'll give it back. It's causing us problems. Let's just hand it back over. And so they do. They hand it back over. And and, and ultimately, the ark does find its way back to the people of God. And ultimately, after a lot of drama that we'll hit on just a little while, uh, in a little while, by being transported incorrectly and all kinds of things, it finally does get back to the people of God, gets back to Zion, gets a tent to itself. David goes in and he prays before it, that sort of thing. But then, here comes Solomon. And Solomon is, is tasked by God with building the first temple. A more permanent structure, a more permanent tabernacle for God to dwell among his people. And it's said that a holy of holies was built and the ark was placed there. And in the ark was the, was the Ten Commandments, was this covenant. And the glory of God filled the place. God is back among his people. Glory to God. But in 587 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. And you don't hear about the ark anymore. It surmised they took it, but after the, after the Babylonians released, uh, actually, all the people back, the Persians let them go back to the land, they don't bring the ark back with them. 
and it's lost, and treasure hunters have been after it ever since. But, of course, we know in the 1940s that Indiana Jones found it, and it's in a warehouse somewhere in Washington, D.C., right? Now, not to make light of this, but this, is, this proves something. The history of the ark and how it's been used proves something about us, I think. We're going we're gonna to look at the purpose, but I think we have to understand how we misuse God's things before we can understand how we're supposed to view God's things. And I, this, this misuse of God's holy instrument tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that it's human nature for us to misuse even the most holy of God's gifts. It's human nature for us to misuse even the most holy of what God has given us. Can you put that one up on the screen for them? And as we think about that and understand that God gives us gifts and even those things that are obviously part of his presence and part of how he wants to be known, we can manipulate them into something that serves our own desires and designs. It's human nature to worship the physical rather than God himself. This is what Romans 1 tells us is a problem with all humanity that we exchange the glory of the creator for a creature. It's human nature to use God for his gift giving as opposed to seeing God as the gift. It's human nature for us to do that. It's human nature for us to treat God more like a genie and say, well, I prayed, I gave, so my turn to get, right? It's kind of the way we utilize God, and it's human nature to do that. The Ark of the Covenant, here in the history, it becomes clear that it was just a shadow of the greater reality of God's presence in Christ. One of the things that we have to learn is that only if we understand that God comes to us in Jesus Christ do we understand that the way we have the presence of God that can never be taken from us. See, Jesus himself said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. We can't be taken from his presence by any power of this earth. No Philistines can come and steal the presence of God from us. It's only God's people that can now misuse this. And we want to be careful. We want to understand what God is doing. He's promised to inhabit the praises of his people. He's promised to be with us and never never leave us or forsake us. He is God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus came to dwell among us. So if we have that hope and we have that reality, how are we going to use it? It's, under, it's important for us to understand what God's actual design of the ark tells us about what God wanted and what God's plan was. So look back at the passage, if you would, and you'll see here. And remember that verse 9 tells us very plainly that Moses was to make sure this is done exactly as God intended. It is exactly as God designed and said. And here in the passage, we see that the first item God gives instructions on how to build is the ark. Why? Because the ark was the point. Because God's desire was to dwell among his people and the ark was going to be the specific place, the exact point where God would dwell with his people. The ark was going to be, even though God can be anywhere and is everywhere, God reveals himself specifically in this spot among his people that they would know him. This would be the holy place of his dwelling. So God was putting first things first, making sure the preeminent thing was the preeminent thing, making sure that when we go back, we go, okay, yeah, that's right. It's not about the tapestries. It's not about everything else. It's about God and his presence. God was putting his holy majesty as the preeminent purpose of the tabernacle. So God gives the specifics, and you can see it right there in the text as he tells him exactly how to make it. It's made out of acacia wood. 
It'd be a simple wooden box in a structure, and it's not very big, two and a half by one and a half by one and a half cubits. That's just under four feet by three feet by three feet. I think sometimes we think of this massive ark, because when we hear the word ark, we think Noah, right? But it's not like that. We're talking about a simple wooden box. Now, it was ornate in the sense that it was overlaid with this ornamentation, this gold. There was beautiful ornamentation to it. And he gives specific instructions. It was to be on the inside and the outside overlaid with gold. And probably the way this worked was in the Egyptian style, they would have heavy gold plates that would be nailed to the wood. So this simple wooden box, light wooden box, four by three by three wooden box, all of a sudden becomes a heavy load to carry because of the heavy wooden plates inside and out. This heavy gold sheet that was refined with no impurities to signify the purity and holiness of the place where it was placed and of the God who would come and meet there. It was a molding of gold and four feet with four rings to keep it off the ground. So it wasn't going to be dirtied and sullied by sitting on the earth. This is God's resting place among his people. The rings there would have wooden poles overlaid with gold placed through them, never to be removed. Why? So that the ark would never have to be touched. If you ever saw Indiana Jones, you know what happens. That's not what happens. But, I mean, it's like, so if you, you got to go see now, it's the last scene where people's faces start melting, you know. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you touch the ark, this is the holy place of God and the holiness of God is a fearful thing so it was never to be touched ever the ark was to hold the tablets of the law God said put the testimony in there the golden top seat really becomes the the most important part of the whole ark this mercy seat this atonement cover of pure gold he says to make it the size of the top of the box and then on either end to have these hammered cherubim this would be where the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the day of atonement once a year where he makes sacrifice outside and he come in and make sacrifice for the whole people and he would sprinkle the blood on the atonement cover on the mercy seat in hebrew the word for this cover is the atonement cover in greek The word for this is the propitiation seat, the where God's wrath was turned away from the people's sin. This is where all of the wrath of God towards sin, all that God hated could be dealt with by his mercy. The cover had the two angels, cherubim, not the chubby cheeked precious moments kind that you have somewhere in your house. But the fearsome creatures that God created to guard His holy presence. Flanking the seat where God said, there I will meet with you and give you commandments. What was God's goal? He says it right there in verse 22. The goal was to meet with the people. The goal was to be among the people. There I will meet you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. God wants us to know him. He wants us to hear from him. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God wants to be known and he wants to be among his people. Why? Why, why do all of this? Why, why, why the ark? Why the gold? Why the cherubim? Why all of this? Well, the purpose and meaning of the ark are important for the believer because it points us to the fact that we need a better ark. It points us to the fact that the ark wasn't enough. It's no great loss that the ark is gone right now. Because we have Jesus. 
As believers, we don't need to go back and, and find the, the relics of the past and the elements of the past. As, as archaeologically significant as they would be. Because we have Jesus as the fulfillment and the final reality. So the purpose and meaning of the ark becomes really clear for us. The ark reminds us that we have a king, that God is our king. So the people are walking through the wilderness and they left Pharaoh and they don't have a king. They have Moses leading them, but God is their king. And God designed himself to be the king. He wants to be the king of his people. He wants to be the king who dwells among his people. And so he comes and he sets up his throne room and the place where he will speak and he will decree to the people. The, the, the law of the testimony, this covenant that he made with the people would be at his feet inside the ark because he is the one who is holding and keeping the covenant for the people. He is king. The ark reminds us that God is holy. And we are not. The ark reminds us that we are holy or he is holy and we are not. The separation from the Israelites by the veil And the curtain, the fact that you couldn't get in. The fact that Moses had to meet with God there, God would speak. But the the high priest was the only one who could go in once a year on behalf of the people. And only after he makes sacrifice for himself and for everyone else. the, The ark reminds us that God is holy and we are not. His holiness is acceptable or inaccessible. The the. Purity of the gold reminds us of the purity of God. The ark was not to be touched. Even in the way it was transported, it made sure that it was kept revered, lifted up, and holy. Uh, Back, I was telling you when David was transporting the ark after the Philistines returned it, and he was going to take it back to the people of God, they start on the trip and they put it on a cart. First mistake, because it was only to be carried by the poles. Put it on a cart, not treating it as God designed, not doing what God said. And this guy named Uzzah is walking beside. Uzzah's a good guy. I mean, Uzzah would probably be a great deacon, right? Because Uzzah's just like, I want to help. Let me help. And he's walking, and, and now there's this, there's this cart with the Ark of the Covenant, and it starts to tip. And the Ark starts to fall off, and Uzzah goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And he reaches out to stop it. And he drops dead on the spot. I don't know if his face melted, but he dropped dead on the spot. And, and David, in that moment, goes, yeah, okay, maybe we shouldn't go any further. So they leave the ark there for months in the care of someone and then come back for it later. Even the transportation of the ark was a holy thing. Why? Because God's presence was leading and guiding his people. Oh, how quick we are to treat God's word as trivial. God's guidance as trivial. God's clear demands on us as trivial. Because it's just not practical. It's just not pragmatic. It's not quick enough. It's not in our time. It's not the way we would do it. Yet God has designed his people to hear his word and to have his presence guiding them. Even the cherubim themselves are a reminder of how our sin has cast us out of his presence. The cherubim were the ones who were set up at the gate of the Garden of Eden to keep us out. And you're like, why would God want to keep us out of the Garden of Eden? Well, because we had already eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which led us to death. But if we went back and ate the tree of life, guess what? We'd live forever in sin and evil. 
Well, even the cherubim are an act of God's grace. And, and here they're protecting us from the holiness of God. Knowing that we are not worthy to come before him. I, I want you to think about this. The cherubim were guardians of God's presence. They're not guarding God. God doesn't need anybody to guard him. Like if you want to see what a lion does, just let it loose. Right? You don't need a guard on a lion. Just let it loose. Our God doesn't need the cherubim guarding him. No, the cherubim are guarding us from his presence. They're guarding God's people from the holy presence of God because of our unholiness. I want you to just, in your mind's eye, picture what Ezekiel saw when he saw the cherubim. Because I, I, I don't want you to miss this, that this is how fearsome God is, that the creatures that would protect us from his presence are this fearsome. If the creatures that protect us from God's presence are this fearsome, Imagine how fearful and fearsome God is. Here you go. Ezekiel chapter 1. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. I'm freaked out already. Then each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. So like they, they, they did this. Right? They crab walked, it seems, almost. Right? And as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. They followed the presence of God. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. I'm just saying, there's no wonder that every time an angel shows up in the Bible, people fall at their feet as if dead. And if the creatures designed to protect us from the holy presence of God are that fearsome, imagine what it's like to be in the presence of a holy God. It's a fearful thing to come before a holy God. And we need to be reminded that God is holy and we are not. And because of that, we cannot come into his presence except by his decree, except by his design, except by his grace, except by his mercy. No one comes to the Father unless drawn is what Jesus said. The ark reminds us of our unholiness and God's holiness, but it also reminds us of our need of a mediator and of sacrifice. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and only after making sacrifice for himself and for the people. Imagine walking in one year as the high priest and you're sprinkling blood. The stains of last year's blood are still there. And when you pick up the poles to carry, when the priest would pick up the poles to, to carry it, the stains of the blood are still there. Reminding every time that we need mercy from God. That our sin separates us from God. So God has to demonstrate his mercy. The ark reminds us of this. The ark reminds us of God's mercy through atonement. We need a mediator and a sacrifice and we need God's mercy. Otherwise we have no hope. And that mercy comes through atonement. Reminds us that he's a righteous and just God who knows our sin 
And because of his love and mercy demonstrates great grace towards us. I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 3 if you would. I want you to see this because it's a really important notion for us today. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 says this. And I mentioned earlier that the Hebrew and the Greek words for this mercy seat, this place of mercy that was the cover for the Ark of the Covenant... That's important for us to understand. I said that the Greek word was for propitiation, the the turning away of the wrath of God. I want you to see here in Romans chapter 3 what Paul says. But now the righteousness, this righteous judgment of God has been manifested apart from the law, verse 21, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us should be ushered into his presence. But we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, so this is Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. He had been patient. But he poured it all out on Jesus, all the wrath towards sin upon Jesus. All of that was poured out and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Jesus is the one who was slain for us. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word for propitiation there in Romans is the same Greek word for atonement seat, for the mercy seat of God that's used in the Old Testament. God is the merciful, righteous judge who shows mercy only through Jesus Christ. The ark reminds us of this. The ark reminds us that we need to hear from God. What did God say his purpose was? There I will meet with you and I will talk to you. I will tell you all the commandments. I'm going to, Verse 22 makes it really clear that we are a needy people. We need to hear from God. If that's ever been true, it's true right now. Like there's plenty of voices. There's plenty of things. There's plenty of stuff happening in our world that's telling us things. We need to hear from God. We need to know God's presence. We need to know who he is. And it tells us this. And this is really important. It's essential for us to understand this. The purpose of the presence of God is not so that we will get some euphoric sense of his presence. It is so that he can speak to us. So that we'll hear from him. We've kind of co-opted the idea of the presence of God into a feeling where a certain song might drive me to And I'm all for euphoric worship. What I'm saying is that's not necessarily the presence of God. There's nowhere in Scripture apart from he inhabits the praises of his people. But that could be amen, praise the Lord, and it can be singing. Singing isn't necessarily the conduit to us understanding the presence of God. No, the presence of God is God dwelling among his people and coming and speaking. What does he say his goal is? I'm going to come talk to you. I want to tell you the primary way this week that you can experience the presence of God. It's in this book. He has spoken so that we can know him. His spirit works through this word. And I encourage you to get to know him. We need to hear from God. And he has spoken. This is the life and breath of God's people. This is the joy of God's people. This is the source of God's people. This is the whole purpose of God's people to experience God's presence. And to experience God's presence is to experience his word and his rule and his reign. 
the ark reminds us of this, and the ark reminds us that we need a better ark. We need a better ark. We need the very presence of God. We don't just need a relic. We need God himself. And for us to have life and joy and peace and righteousness, we have to have access to the living God. And this is where the hope of Jesus comes in. We're not left longing for a lost ark. We don't have to go find the lost ark. We don't have to join anyone on any quest to find the lost ark. Because we were the ones who were lost and our Savior came and found us. He came to us. And so we know that Jesus is the better mediator. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us when Christ appeared as a high priest, this mediator of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that's himself, he was the greater and more perfect tent, not like the tabernacle, but greater, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. He went into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. He was the mediator and the sacrifice for us. And he secured an eternal redemption for us. Jesus is the better mediator and Jesus is the better sacrifice. He's the once for all sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us by that will we have been made, been sanctified. We've been made clean. So the, the priest would spend time making themselves clean to be able to go and make sacrifice to make the people clean. And we're told that in Jesus, by the will of God, we've already been made clean through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When he made sacrifice, We've been made clean. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Every time the priest went in to sprinkle the blood, he saw the last blood and he realized this is pointless. I'm going to have to do this again next year. But Jesus was once for all. Waiting for that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is the better sacrifice once for all. And Jesus is the new and living way into the presence of God. And my cry to you today is to find Jesus today. To trust Jesus today. To run to Jesus today. To call upon the name of Jesus today. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 tells us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I told a group yesterday, I'm so surprised every time I read that verse that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. If you want to get a group of people to really clam up and show how little confidence they have, a group of believers, just ask them to pray. Like pray in public. And everybody's like, nope. They start checking their watches. Oh, I think we're getting a phone call. Confidence to come into the holy places. Confidence, but we don't even have confidence to pray in public. And we're told here, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can have confidence to come into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. He says in verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. See, the old way was death. The new way through is life. Through Jesus, through his flesh. I know, I know the time, but I want you to see this, okay, because it's really great, okay? I promise you it's worth it. Go to John chapter 20. Everybody flip over there. I'm telling you, it's worth it. Like, scroll there, flip there, whatever, okay? I want you to see it. There are dots that have to be connected through the whole Bible, not like some code or anything like that. It's just that it's one book, 
written by a lot of different writers with one author, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's one purpose. It's all pointing to Jesus. And when you connect these dots, your mind starts to explode. Okay, and this is one of those moments. Last night I shared this with Joanne as I went over my sermon. And she went, what, 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 what? Well, actually, that's what I did. She went, wow. She was a lot less impressed. But I hope you'll be really, really pleased with this. It, it, it makes me stand up and, and praise the Lord to be reminded of this. We're told there in Hebrews that we have a new and living way. We're told back in Exodus that the ark had these two angels that were at the foot and the head, right, on either side of the mercy seat. I want you to see here in John chapter 20. This is at the resurrection. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Just picture it. And she wept. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And when she looked into the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Is everybody with me on the picture right now? We have in this holy place of Jesus' burial and Jesus' resurrection proof that he is God in flesh. All the dots connecting now that Jesus is the one who has come for us. Jesus is the one who has come to be among his people. As Stephen Nichols wrote, God desires to meet with his people and the blood of the spotless lamb is the only means by which that meeting is made possible. The mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest, it all prefigured Christ to come. Christ did come. And Christ did make the sacrifice, and Christ was raised from the dead. Make no mistake about it, these are historical realities. The tabernacle was real. The Ark of the Covenant was real. The mercy seat was real. The cross was real. The empty tomb was real. And a real woman stooped to look at real angels. Christ is our mercy seat. There, in and through Christ, God meets with us. The question is, what are we going to do with him? When many followers of Jesus walked away from him, when things got hard, and he said that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father, and people said, we're no longer going to go with you. He asked his disciples a question, and what comes out of it is this truth, that Jesus is the Holy One of God, God with us. Where else are we going to go? John chapter 6 says this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, he turned to his disciples and he said, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to no longer be in my presence? That's the idea. What's Simon Peter's response? Verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believed and come to know that you are the Holy One. Of God. You have the words of eternal life. This Holy One of God, Jesus Christ, has the words of eternal life. He's come to us. To who else are you going to go for life? If you're here today and you're not a believer, if you're watching today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, where else are you going to find life? Where else are you going to find one who paid all the penalty for your sin for you? And now offers you through his spilt blood, his torn body, and his risen life, eternal life. And not just eternal life forever, but 
access to the presence of God now. To live with him, to hear from him, to know him, to have the words of eternal life. If you're a believer, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how, how easy has it become for us to listen to a whole lot of other people and to run a whole lot of different directions, to find value and hope in a whole lot of different things? Oh, that we would be like Peter. Where else are we going to go? Whom, whom, whom else are we going to go to? You, you have the words of eternal life. So have you believed? Have you come to know that Jesus himself is the Holy One of God? The better tabernacle, the better priest, the better ark. Jesus is God made flesh. Would you come to him as the gift himself, not just the gift giver? Will he be enough for you? Father, I pray that Jesus would be enough for us. I pray that we would live that way, that we would look at your word and hear from you, Lord, that we would desire to hear from you, that we would see your word as life for us and to know that you dwell with us in Christ, that you've given us your spirit as your people. And for those who don't know you, I pray that today would be the day where you draw them to Jesus so that they can know God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus, the one who came to save us from our sins. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Stand together. We're going to sing an old favorite hymn for Christmas. Oh, come all ye faithful. I think it's ironic. So before we start, I think it's super ironic. It's called, oh, come all ye faithful. And yet the call of the gospel is, oh, come all ye unfaithful. Oh, come all ye sinners. This is a cry for us as believers. Are we going to come and honor Christ as Christ? Love Christ as Christ. Know that he is God with us. But the call for all who don't know Christ is come all ye unfaithful. (laughs) Because he is the one who has made the way through his body, through his death, through his life. Come to him.